Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. I'm Rudy Fala, the founder of Voice of Fintech podcast, and this episode is hosted by amazing Vani Baumgartner. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we will be speaking to Cameron Peake, who is a partner at Financial Venture Studio. A little bit about Cameron, she's an entrepreneurial leader who has launched, built and scaled fintech companies around the world. Previously, she was the CEO and co-founder of Aslo, a leading digital banking platform for small businesses in the US. At Aslo, Cameron grew the company to 150 employees, a billion dollar in deposits, supported the financial and business needs of hundreds of thousands of small entrepreneurs, and was recognized as one of Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40 for her work to deliver financial services to businesses impacted by COVID. Welcome, Cameron. How are you today? Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm doing great. Great. You're in Texas. I am. I'm in Austin. Super. Good weather today? It's May and it's hot and muggy already. So uh, it goes with the territory of being here. We're very happy to have you on the podcast today. So tell us about yourself and share with us a little bit about your background. What led you to Financial Venture Studio? Sure. Yeah. So I've spent pretty much my whole career using digital channels in some way to extend or open up financial services to new markets. I Early in my career, I did fintech and emerging markets, so launched different banking and payments products in places like Zimbabwe and Indonesia and the Philippines and Haiti, and then made the decision to focus a little bit closer to home. So I ended up launching Aslo. So as you mentioned, a a digital bank for small businesses, one of the first in that space. And again, as you mentioned, grew that to about 150 employees, nearly a billion dollars in deposits. So really fun run. I ended up stepping back about a year ago and spent some time advising fintech founders. So pre-product to pre-IPO, got a lot mm-hmm. of energy out of that. And so I thought about my next move, wanted to really focus more on the kind of teaching, coaching, guidance sort of role. Also, I've been, as you can probably tell, pretty motivated by impact. And so I was excited to have kind of an impact at a portfolio level. And so I have known Ryan, who's run uh, FES for about a decade, caught up with him. He invited me to come join. And after I kind of resolved the cognitive dissonance of always picturing myself as an operator, got really excited about the potential for venture and just thought that they were doing the best job of in the early stage VC space, providing really high quality operational support for founders. So I was really thrilled to join and started in January. Great. Congratulations. Thank you. So tell us a bit more about FVS or your role and what kind of companies do you guys invest in? Yeah. As I mentioned, FVS is a pre-seed and seed stage fintech fund, and we provide capital, but also really focused operational support to our founders. And so if you think about fintech, really massive industry, still a lot of potential for disruption, but also really high barriers to entry. And that can be everything from 
regulation, vendor and partner tech stacks, fraud, a whole gamut of things. And so what we do is we bring that operational expertise to help those founders kind of jump more quickly over those barriers to entry and launch and grow more quickly. And so that shows up in a couple of different ways. The first is just bespoke operational support. So myself and another partner, both former fintech founders and CEOs, our other partner has a long history of investing and providing consulting and strategic guidance in the space. And so we're in the trenches with our companies every week, every other week for the first kind of six to eight months of the investment, working through go-to-market, fraud, hiring issues, a whole range of things. And then we also have a more systematic program where we've identified the most important pillars of things to launch a company in fintech. Again, that might be partners or investors or customer acquisition. And we either do one-to-one matching with our portfolio companies or we provide case studies. So we bring in other founders to talk about what they did. And again, the overall goal here is to provide our founders with the connections and the education to help them launch their companies more quickly and grow them more quickly. And what locations are your our companies based in? Yeah. Yeah, Our expertise is really in the US market. So the vast majority of them are either based here or their, their primary customer segment is based here. Mm-hmm. And when you had mentioned previously about having worked, what was it, in Zimbabwe and Indonesia and so on, what kinds of challenges were you facing there when it comes to location regulatory aspects, perhaps? Oh, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was a range of things. And I'll say this was about 10 years ago, 10, 10 plus years ago. A lot of it at that point was around infrastructure and right. education. And so if you think about the infrastructure bit, these were heavily cash-based economies. And to drive a digital product, you needed to create that network of infrastructure to transfer cash to the digital assets. And that really did not exist or exist with any kind of meaningful impact at that point in time. And so thinking about the economics and the the kind of strategy around building out those networks was really important. And the other was just education. Again, some of what we were doing, for example, in Zimbabwe was, was a mobile money product. And so educating people about how their cash turned into digital savings and like mm-hmm. both how that worked conceptually and, and mm-hmm. practically was yeah. a big challenge. And then the regulatory aspect, it was interesting because it had been, again, at least at this point, a little bit resolved in each market. And it was pretty cool to do it at a global level and see the differences. But in Africa, it was much more driven by telcos and mobile network operators. And so the flavor resembled airtime savings plays and regulation was at kind of a pooled level. So a pooled account that telco would hold. In Latin America, is much more bank-driven. And so there was more uh, regulation, more requirements around bank partnerships. And so regulation took different flavors, but it was very early in the journey. And I think in many ways, regulation has caught up uh, a bit in those markets. Something I think our listeners would be pleased to learn more about is how to bridge the gap between founders and investors. You've been on both sides. What is something as a founder that you wished investors did more of? And how will you be implementing this into your own investments or portfolio companies? Yeah, there's a couple. The first one I touch on to some extent, like one of my main motivations for joining FVS was the deep operational support. And I think as a founder, fintech is a really complicated industry. And so having a bench of people that understand it and can help 
uh, guide the way is really helpful. Again, I had a lot of that support while I was at Aslo and that just really helped me to get over the hump and grow more quickly. And then the second thing that really was helpful for me as I look back on my entrepreneurial journey was having a diversity of advisors and supporters, particularly those that could help me understand how I could be the highest potential leader. And I, I'm obviously a, f- a female CEO. I was when I started the company, I was relatively young at the time compared to a lot of folks in the financial services space. And so those things meant that my leadership style was going to be different than what I saw around me a lot of times. And so by having a diverse board and a diverse group of supporters and mentors, I was able to test out and realize my own leadership style. And I think that's just so important, both for the success of the company and and your own kind of professional success. And so bringing that perspective and support to portfolio companies in order for them to realize, again, their potential as a leader is something I'm really excited about and and I hope to bring to to the portfolio as well. I'm jumping between topics here, but when you were at Aslo, the whole journey, what was the highlight? Oh, man. (laughs) Too many. Um, I think it's a little bit of a weird one, but we we ended up actually shutting down the company at the end of a, a pretty successful run. And obviously shutting down the company was not a highlight by any stretch of the imagination. But I think one thing about doing that is you're kind of present at your own funeral, right? Or like you're reading your own yeah. obituary. And one really amazing thing about that was the support that both our team had and our customers had for the company. We had customers coming together, offering to to buy the company and talking about how much we changed their their lives. Right now. Exactly. And so I I think, again, that the action wasn't the highlight, but understanding and actually hearing the impact that we had when, you know, customers maybe will leave a positive app store review or something like that. But like seeing the profundity of it all at once was pretty incredible. So I guess just looking back on the entire journey, like what we achieved to unlock potential and and just improve the journeys of small business owners was really powerful. And that was the reason why you founded Aslo? So I founded Aslo. It was, I had, as I mentioned, been doing fintech and emerging markets and it was pretty crazy to me that I could open an account for a farmer in Zimbabwe within a couple of minutes. And for an entrepreneur at the time in the US, again, this was like 2016, it would take two hours and a trip to a bank branch. And so it was just crazy if you think about the comparison between markets and also just entrepreneurs are so busy. The technology was there to be able to do everything digitally and it just wasn't available in the market. So that problem was one of the big catalysts for starting the company. And how do you feel to have been recognized by the Fortune magazine's 40 under 40 for your work? It was it was pretty surreal. I think the a lot of it was around the work that we did coming out of COVID. And what we saw, there were like, it was like the, these dark days of COVID where you had no idea what direction the market was going. For us as a company, the Fed had just cut rates by an insane amount and we were looking at major cuts to our, our revenues as well. And we were in this like kind of crazy state. And then there was this clarifying moment when the PPP payroll protection program was launched by the U.S. government. And we're like, we have to do this for our small business owners. Like we're facing these crazy existential crises, but so are our customers. And so we came together in about a week 
and developed a full-scale program to support access to PPP loans for our customers. And the team just came together and worked with such a drive to achieve this goal. And a big part of the of the recognition was for just how we came together to support entrepreneurs during that time. And so I was very humbled to, to be recognized for that, but it was also very much a team effort. Yeah, completely. But what an amazing experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty amazing just to come together in a meaningful way at the, yeah, the depth of the crisis, not really not knowing how things were going to shake out. So you've obviously already mentioned one of the challenges that you faced there, but any anything in particular when it comes to a biggest challenge that you have faced as a female founder and now also as a female investor, is gender a thing? Yeah, I I think I've spent a good amount of time thinking about this and a lot of the challenges I faced as a female entrepreneur were because that was my lived experience. And so I'll talk about a couple of examples of what that is, but actually at a higher level, all of them related to me discovering my own leadership style. And so I think some of the lessons that I came to are actually applicable for most entrepreneurs. And a couple of those, one was a lot of the time early in your entrepreneurial journey, it's about doing, you're operating, you're in the trenches and your validation comes from being really great at that. But then at a certain point, the company grows and your role is way less about building and it's more about being that figurehead and leading and guiding. And so for me, like I, I faced kind of a, an identity crisis at that point. And, and <laughs> you know, I said, what is my leadership style? It's not just about being a builder. Yeah. And as I looked around, a lot of the celebrated leaders were the growth hacker types or the hyper-aggressive male founders, and that didn't feel accessible at all to me. And so I went through a phase where I was experimenting with a, a ton of different styles, and ultimately I realized that I would be best served just by recognizing how I was feeling, what felt the most accessible to me, and and just using that as my platform. And I discovered that once I got there, I, I actually unlocked a whole new kind of leadership potential. Our ability to hire and retain talent changed. Our relationship to customers improved. There's a whole compounding effect around it. And as I mentioned, a lot of that came from a network of advisors and supporters. But I think that realization around you're going to be most successful just by following your own authentic style is a problem that so many entrepreneurs face, um, this idea of like imposter syndrome and potentially trying to replicate a lot of those celebrated founders is something that all entrepreneurs face. And so by discarding that, I was really able to get past that. But that was a major lesson to me as a female founder. But would you say that your authentic leadership style changed as the company grew? I, it didn't change. I was just able to better act on what I was feeling and experiencing. So I'll give you an example. When we got big enough and we hired some amazingly talented people in general, but for me, execs that reported directly into me, I was really excited because they were leaders in their field and I didn't have to pretend to you know, be a specialist in, in, in certain sectors. But what I found was that when something felt wrong, when there was like an instinct that, that felt wrong when they would bring something up, I, initially I would suppress that. 
because I didn't know anything about, let's focus on marketing. I didn't know anything about marketing. Right. <laughs> but what I realized is that, and, and for me, I thought initially that a leader had to come armed with all of the answers. I couldn't just show up and say, nope, and move on. I wanted to come and be proactive with answers. But what I realized was that one, I didn't have the answers. And two, those instincts were really important. And so what I ended up doing eventually was saying, hey, this this doesn't quite feel right. Like this, you might face problems here. Or have you thought about doing X or Y or Z? And we would start a conversation and often jointly reach an outcome. And that allowed me to, one, listen to those instincts, right? Because oftentimes they were saying something, even if it wasn't about the specifics of a marketing campaign, again, to go back to that example. And it made me realize my leadership style isn't about having all the answers all the time. Yeah. It's about listening to when something feels wrong and having a collaborative outcome to get there. And so that was something that was unlocked as we grew. And it was about me kind of just listening to some of those gut reactions and channeling them in a way that felt authentic to get to a better outcome. Yeah. Thank you. So Cameron, I'm actually a recruiter and I work with many startups in both the finance and life science industries. And especially when we're talking about a, a very new startup, um, one thing I always hear from founders is how hard it is for them to attract talent. And I suspect generally, I think hiring is always a, a very important and a topic that's quite difficult always. And no matter what stage a company is at, when it's growing, when it's huge, when it's small, talk to us a little bit about your experience with Aslo and with hiring. Yeah, it's interesting. We had a whole day with our portfolio companies around hiring, recruiting, interviewing, because it is so top of mind for everyone. And I think it's especially hard in the early stages because you don't have a brand to rely on to start to yeah. attract talent. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of observations in general, and yeah. then I can talk about Thanks. the Aslo experience specifically. But yeah. I think the first thing you're always going to do, especially without that brand, especially if, if you don't have the opportunity to afford someone like you, afford a recruiter, you're going to tap your network. And then you're typically going to just kind of be nose to the ground, trolling LinkedIn, reaching out to people, canvassing on your own. And then as you bring in more people, they'll reach out to their network as well. And ideally that gets you to the right level of kind of workforce and quality that you can get through to the next round and build up that brand and have a little bit more credibility as you go out into the market. And so one that definitely played out in terms of leveraging our own network, bringing in folks that we we knew. The other thing that we did, and again, we had a, a big debate about this in our people day, was around using outsourced workers. So whether that's contract engineers or accounting people or back office people, and often using that as a trial run to then bring them over. And so we did that in a number of cases where there are sometimes fees associated with that, but pay those because we'd done a run with those folks and knew that they were really high quality. And so that's a way that we at least amplified our workforce initially and, and then brought on full-time talent. And again, that's a controversial approach, but that worked well for us. But I think the biggest thing is you just gotta, you gotta put in the work to bring people in. And I know for me, sometimes it was like upward of, of 40, 60% of my time during a given week just focused on recruiting at some capacity because wow. it's so important. Yeah. Okay. What's something you wish you knew before starting Aslo? There's a ton of things we could say around customer acquisition or vendors or partners. And some of those you just got to live through your own experience yeah. because I, who knows how generalizable they are. But <laughs> I, I think the 
the big thing to me really goes back to acknowledging and embracing your own leadership style. And again, that's how am I listening to my gut, to my instincts? How am I acknowledging what my values are? And the more that you can define that early and then codify those values at a company level, one, it helps to attract and retain the right sort of employees that you want to bring on. Two, it helps to form a more authentic relationship with your customers. Again, if I have values and I can act according to them, that's really helpful. And three, what I found is it was really important for us as we scaled. If I have values that are codified, it allows decision-making across all levels of an organization because there's this rubric you can hand to people to help that. And that's going to really help as you scale, right? Because you don't have to have every decision go up to the top and come back down. And so I think it really starts in terms of what's important to me, what are my values, how does that apply to the company, and then start to use that as a foundation because I think that's just the foundational element to every other problem that you're going to experience. Great. Thank you. Moving on to a bit of a wider topic about the current state of fintech. Um, So we've seen fintech become more mainstream and even spreading into industries that previously wouldn't have been open to it. Can you talk more about how fintech has been growing and developing in the past few years and how this impacts your investment strategy? Yeah, I think one really exciting thing that I've seen is what I call the verticalization of fintech. And so we're seeing more and more investments where on the surface, they don't necessarily look like a a fintech company, but they are under the hood. So so for example, we have one company that's on the surface in the education space, and they're trying to eliminate paper check payments between school districts and vendors. And again, I think you could apply that to a whole swath of industries, but we're seeing more and more plays where on the surface, it's a totally adjacent or ancillary industry, but there's actually a big fintech play. And so one, I think that's really exciting because it's digitizing, going back to my old, my whole reason for being digitizing the financial services network. It's digitizing all of these kind of deep entrenched industries that hadn't seen those efficiencies in the past. I think that's really exciting. And two, I think a lot of it has to do with a lot of these industries are slower moving. And as fintech has become so mainstream and so ubiquitous in the last few years, I think some of these slower moving industries have realized the value of it and the potential and are ripe to think about things differently. So that's been a really exciting one for me. And and I think we're just seeing more and more of entrepreneurs tackling some of those tricky financial problems within the deep industry. Great. I also know you're interested in Web3. What are your thoughts on the expansion of this space and the number of investment dollars going into it? Do you think this is an industry fad or generally the next big thing that will impact everyone? A little bit of both. A ton of money in there right now. And what we're seeing is that any company associated with the Web3 world is definitely carrying a a premium when it comes to, to pricing. And again, billion dollar funds being raised very regularly. So that pricing dynamic isn't too surprising. But I do think... The general consensus is that's going to start to stabilize at some point. But I do think underneath the headlines, there's a lot of potential there at at many levels. And where I'm excited and where we're really focused is on that element of either Web3 mainstreaming, where you're thinking about more mainstream audiences or connecting in with the traditional financial services 
infrastructure. That's what we know really well. That's where we can be really helpful. But the potential to think about what these decentralized technologies can do for the broader market is really exciting to me. And again, there's a ton of interesting tokens and interesting things going on that I don't want to discount it at any level. But the potential to impact just the broad swath of society in some way is is exciting. And, and that's an area that we've been supporting over the last few months. And I think a really interesting stat is we are more of a broad generalist fintech fund. And in the last quarter or two, without any real promotion in this area, we've seen 10% of our deal flows come in on that thesis, right? Around mainstreaming Web3 at some level. So the market's starting to see it and more traditional fintech entrepreneurs are are playing in this area as well. You might have already um, answered my next question, which is really how do you expect the fintech space to change over the next couple of years? Yeah, I think Web3 is a huge one. Again, we're seeing so many founders focused on it, a lot of dollars there. And I think we will see just a lot more ubiquity of it within you know, mainstream America, kind of mainstream in general. And I think the other kind of leading indicator there is talent. So much of talent right now is going to that space. We're talking to founders and traditional fintech, and they're competing with Web3 companies over talent now because there's such excitement there. And so, again, I think that's another really interesting leading indicator as we think about where things are going to be in two, three, four, five years. There's excitement, there's energy, there's a lot of building going on that area. And I I think it's going to have a lot of downstream effects for what you and I see every day. How would one win the war on talent? (laughs) Oh, if I had that, I would be a very, very wealthy person. Um, I, again, I think it, 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 To me, it comes back to two things. Um, One is defining your own personal values and your values as a company because talent is going to wants to join an exciting new company and an exciting new initiative. But at the end of the day, you're working with people and you're working inside an organization and that only goes so far. And so the more that you really acknowledge that and codify it and build it into your company, People at that interpersonal level know what they're buying and you're going to retain people. They're then going to refer more people to come in. It has this flywheel effect. And so I think that is just a really important foundation to, to have in place. And then the second thing is you just gotta, you gotta hustle for it, right? I think for a founder, there's three really important things you can do. One is set your company vision. Second is raise money, right? So you can co-op and continue more things. And the third is to recruit people. Like that fuels your company. And so you as a founder, even though it may be the last thing you want to do in the world, even though you may want to just be focused on building, I think it's so important to be out there getting your name and your brand out there and meeting people and just spending time recruiting. And, and so again, winning the war on talent, I think comes back to employees knowing what sort of culture they're going into and having that be clear and tight and defined. And it's not going to be the culture for everyone. The right ones will be attracted to it. And then two, being out there and hustling and spending a lot of time just getting the best people you can in the door. Wonderful. Cameron, thank you so much. Any last words from you? No, it was great to be here to talk to you. I'm always super excited to talk to founders or folks that are thinking about uh, jumping into the space. So please reach out and and excited to see uh, where the future will go. Brilliant. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Cameron, for your time. You take care. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.